Well, 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 here we are again at another broadcast of What's Up Cuz, a broadcast that is designed with you in mind. And I'm Dr. David Brock, and I'm here with my wonderful, beautiful co-host, Dr. Sharon McDaniel. Doc, why don't you greet the people and say good morning? Good morning, and what's up, cuz? What's up, cuz? How's things? Oh, things are going all right. What about you? Oh, no complaints. Every day above ground is a good day, and I'm thankful for another day. Me too, me too. Well, I'm so excited we get to come back again and greet people and to share practical information with individuals that they can take and apply to their lives. So I'm excited about what has been happening. We've been getting some great feedback, and I'm excited about the feedback we're getting. And I know today is going to be just as exciting as we bring some awareness to a wonderful, wonderful situation and topic. Topic uh, of about us about us right yeah, That's talk right. about us peoples mm-hmm. all of us is, <laughs> yeah we're talking about we know we just came out of Black History Month but you know what uh, as you said and we said earlier uh, we live it every day we live our history every day uh, yeah I told somebody the other day I said I'm an African American man three, tw- uh, three seven days a week 365 days a year mm-hmm. 24 hours a day so this one month February is just not enough for me we got stuff going on all year right well we appreciate the acknowledgement for the month. But however, (laughs) we live our experience every day. And um, as you said, because we live our history every day, we are so delighted to have Doc. Guess what? This is our second guest. Second. Oh, look at we're moving on up. Listen, (laughs) listen. We have our second guest for our podcast. And um, it's my friend and colleague, Dr. Evan Destin. And he lives in the North Carolina area, but he's also a board member of a Second Chance Incorporated, but he's really a brilliant scholar. Anytime um, I'm in the presence of Dr. Destin, I know that I'm going to be just educated beyond words, and he just is such... um, a wonderful person, a wonderful scholar, and humble in all of his brilliance. And so we're so delighted to have him today to really walk us through about the self-image and the self-esteem of black children in America through the eyes of James Baldwin. Isn't that going to be interesting? Oh, I think it's going to be exciting. I can't wait to share in the conversation. I read his paper that he uh, shared with us, and a brilliant, brilliant man, and I'm excited about uh, just sharing him with the world. Absolutely. Well, so am I, and so I want to center this conversation um, with a quote from James Baldwin, and it says, the paradox of education is precisely this. That as one begins to become conscious, one begins to examine the society in which he is being educated. And I'll say that one more time. The paradox of education is precisely this. That as one begins to become conscious, one begins to examine the society in which he is being educated. And so with that, we'd like to introduce Dr. Even Destin. Hey, thank you so much, Sharon, and Dr. Sharon McDaniel, and also Dr. David Brock. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. Oh, you are so welcome. You are so welcome. So we're just going to ask you to just talk a little bit about who you are, and then we're going to go back and forth with our questions as we typically do. And sometimes you may say something, and we may ask a different question. So I know that this process is so organic for us, but we really are just so delighted to have you this morning. Oh, no problem, no problem. Uh, so um, my name is Dr. Even Destin. I am a history teacher at a private school in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, but I'm also an independent researcher, and um, I'm of Haitian origin. Uh, my parents um, um, are immigrant who immigrated here in the 70s, and um, so I'm a first-generation college student, high school, college, PhD, and uh, I'm also a product as a graduate of Morehouse College, a historically black college. All right, go ahead, Morehouse. All right, Morehouse <laughs> in the house. <laughs> yes, indeed. 
Um, well, a little bit more uh, in terms of uh, my scholarship. So, um, right currently, I am. I've been spending the last five years working on a book on game theory, and I've been really diving in. Um, and it really, for me, most of my research is focused on ethnic, race, and ethnic relations, looking at how Haitians became black in America. But it wasn't until I really uh, dived into the work of James Baldwin more recently, given his renaissance, the renaissance of his work, ever since um, I Am Not Your Negro by the director uh, Raoul Peck, I really wanted to kind of dive in and I saw some connections that was really worth uh, exploring. So I've been kind of really going through his nonfiction work and just really kind of diving in to see um, what was his philosophy about. Most people who talk about his philosophy, or at least talk about James Baldwin, talk really mostly about his history. Uh, about his biography, but never really get into why was he saying the things that he was saying. Mm, mm-hmm. And so, uh, so that's what I do in terms of um, that's what I'm working on right now. Well, that's pretty incredible um, just to think about, you know, a man who has passed on but has left such a legacy for us to to think about and really go deeper and really help us examine our curiosity through his voice, if you will. And so... When we think about his work, particularly a talk with teachers that um, the original title, The Negro Child, His Self-Image, you know, um, he, he purports that this myth in America that we are, we are better as, Amer- as America because we have basically um, outgrown our racist history, if you will. And when mm-hmm. we think about the exploration of this through the context of the classroom today, And he writes, and I'm paraphrasing, that if he were a teacher, he would say to a black boy that if he intends to be a great man, he must once decide that he is stronger than the conspiracy. And the conspiracy is the myth of America being better than her race's past and that he must never make peace with it. He must never make peace with it. So what does this mean um, through your lens in the context of uh, today's a young black child, particularly as educators grapple with this whole notion of what can be taught in the classroom today through this historical lens? Yeah, that's a great question. Excuse me. You know, I think it means the same what it meant when he said it in 1963, that um, that really black children, and in this case, case, speaking about black boys, that they are facing a conspiracy. And what this conspiracy is, when he says Miss America, talk about white supremacy. And the idea that if kids could, particularly black boys, could um, feel that, could see that they're stronger than this conspiracy, then they wouldn't succumb to it. Because if, in a sense, he's thinking about America being a total experience of white supremacy in all ways. And it causes uh, students to, if they did, to um, adopt what they're being told, to almost kind of, um, in, almost kind of uh, lead itself to self-destruction because they would then submit to how they're perceived on television, how mm-hmm. they're perceived in books, and how they're perceived in work. And so I think that in today's context, that's still true, right? I mean, we are in a climate right now where we think about uh, this sort of um, dismantling of like um, black experience in the classroom, and to think that if that's gone, you can imagine that it leaves up people to actually accept the world as it is, or accept America as it is, and it only causes this confusion that causes students to kind of feel like maybe I am nothing more than what I'm being told. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's what's really going on right now today that is so detrimental. And that's something that Baldwin had, had been echoing way back in 1963 and it's showing itself even more so today. Wow. 
Well, that's that's really good, Doc. I tell you, sir, that's really good. And and you know, earlier before we went live, we were saying, you know, I said to uh, Dr. Sharon and and yourself, you know, I am an African American man. I'm a black man, and I'm a black man. Mm-hmm. 365 days a year, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So, in your interpretation of what Baldwin may have been referring to, the criminal assault on culture, mind, black ecosystem and black experiences in America, the educators have a responsibility to tell black children that they must value themselves and all children are responsible for healing this nation. How can we advance yours and Baldwin's idea in this country that seems to be uh, increasingly polarized by a host of ism and schisms, this and that and things everywhere? How can we advance your ideas and Baldwin's ideas in this country? You know, it's um, it's increasingly difficult when you have what essentially is a chilling effect in the educational system in America because of the fear that parents or discontented teachers go up to school boards and having um, you know, having education be basically um, manipulated, if not uh, organized in a way that doesn't serve the child. And so uh, it's difficult when you when a person as you know, like an educator wants to do something that does help and that is in the interest of the child faces administrative pushback. Mm-hmm. So it makes it so much more difficult. And all it does, it really, what it really does is actually forces us to have to point to those who have the ability, who have the means to communicate what we, what we know to be true, that black people have, you know, their humanity must be argued for. You have, the, you have this need to kind of point to the, the Nicole Hannah-Jones point to the African-American you know, Policy Forum with um, Kimberly Crenshaw and her team to say their resources that are there, so I can only suggest, I may not be able to teach it, but they're there. And if you can point to those individuals, point to people doing the work, I think that's one way of kind of, um, one way of kind of supporting students in that way. But it, it still poses a, a, a problem when in such a, in a, such a climate that we are in right now, that um, that one does it at their risk of not even you know getting hired as a teacher because of the stigma of having to be teaching something that's not considered uh, detriment to the kids, uh, and that's that's a struggle I think that we will face. Um, but there's more to say about that. I think that we probably are leading our way into a bigger movement to push back against that. And we can talk about it a little later. You know that's pretty important and pretty remarkable statement as well. I'm thinking about. Um, you mentioned Nicole Hannah Jones and Kimberly Crenshaw, and you know this uh, past summer, Kimberly and her team had um, was going on a tour around America, just around the books that were banned. Um, many of the books mm-hmm. that you're referring to, in terms of what can no longer be taught in the court in a classroom, or you know just really helping center young African-American children's um, understanding of self in the classroom. And we know in the nation there is a particular process or um, pedagogical way in which teachers are to instruct. And so when you push against that, then there are some challenges, and that's what we're we're up again today. And so we will go further in that. But what I want to ask you, so when you think about you, Baldwin, and other scholars, you talk about the paradoxes of what black people face in this country, and particularly as we think about that the most of the institutions that we're now engaged in, they were not designed for us because we were not even considered to be whole people back in the day, right? And so when we think right. about education as one of those institutions, 
um, where once we were forbidden to be educated, now we have black children who are being educated in this country in these same systems. And so you write that black children may have feelings of schizophrenia. On one hand, white children are affirmed in classrooms where black children um, in these same systems are perhaps taught about to discount their blackness or even the perception of race, racism in America. Can you talk to us about how this paradox is being addressed today in school and how do you think it's also impacting our black communities? You know, I don't, I, I'm not too sure that even some, I don't think many educators understand that there is a paradox. Um, mm. I think that black children know there's one or black people know that there's one because we know that there's two, there's two Americas. You know that you can talk very differently when you're in the black table where you're among black friends, you know how different that is when you're talking out among people of a mixed crowd, right? And so that's one experience from black kids, but when you think about white students who seem that who have this um, understanding that America has always been better, you know, better for its past, we've done right by everybody, you know, um, that they don't see and believe such paradox exists. So you can imagine that in the classroom that um, if you are with educators who don't see or don't recognize a paradox, then you're not recognizing or seeing the child in your class who does not have the same experience, mm-hmm. right? This is where you get these sort of interactions with, with teachers who can't understand why can't you stay late today to kind of do your work? Why can't you, um, why can't you buy, buy, you know, certain, you know, um, school materials? Uh, not understanding that people of different communities and not by all means, by not all black people are in situations where they're under resourced. However, it's the assumption alone that then kind of, um, if you can imagine that someone who operates under such an assumption, imagine how they teach. Imagine how that mm-hmm. is kind of being, you know, thought where one should assume that America's always been great. And I think about uh, one particular example when we think about the, the history of the Statue of Liberty. I mean, we all have um, heard or at least have come have confronted the idea that um, the Statue of Liberty is a symbol of immigration. Um, that that narrative has been, been you know written out in many textbooks. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the actual history of the Statue of Liberty, it's a gift from France because of the you know the emancipation of you know ending of we could say quote unquote the ending of uh, uh, slavery as a sort of gift to this country. But that narrative has changed, even though that the architect for the Statue of Liberty argued with the idea of putting the chains around the Statue of Liberty. Lady Liberty, uh, and then they compromise by saying, keep those changed by the feet because we don't want our country to be seen. Mm. And so the narrative kind of changes. So you can imagine that that kind of narrative that gets trumpeted as, oh, it's a beacon of immigration. It is in one sense, but that's not the origin. So you can imagine that a paradox that's not recognized mm. leads to this sort of thinking that how could you not, you know, or leads to assumptions about children or about the world that don't really acknowledge the realities of uh, a segment of population in the classroom. Wow, that is just absolutely, that's a mic drop right there. I mean, you have, you know, I've studied the Statue of Liberty many times, and and certainly in that context, but to actually hear it out loud, you know, that really is a moment to pause, to say this is what we're experiencing and what children, they have no idea if they're not even being acknowledged that there is that paradox. And, you know, when you talked about 
so why can't you stay after school? Well, you don't recognize I may have to care for my younger brother uh, or sister, or Mm -hmm. I have to prepare the meal because mom, you know, who's maybe a single mom is needing to work late. So whatever that situation may be, if we're not looking at the world through the eyes of that diverse lens and everyone's experience is not the same, then we can be short-sighted in the way in which we even see children. And also we pathologize families from that lens as well. So I just think that that is just an incredible, you know, mic drop moment. Uh, that really is. And, and I hope you all give me a little bit of, of, of latitude here. Uh, Doc, when you were talking, you made me uh, think of something. So while we, while you were speaking, I went and I was looking at an article uh, from Time Magazine. And Time Magazine is saying that out of all the teachers in America, we only have 7% black. 7% mm-hmm. black teachers, which means 97 or 93% of teachers are uh, other, are either white or another race, but only 7%. So the challenge of instilling uh, our knowledge and history of who we are is even again um, hindered by such a thing. And, and, and the article goes on in time magazine to say that we are probably going to have less than in the next few years. And this was date, this was um, uh, data on at 2020. Mm-hmm. So now here we are 2023. Mm-hmm. We don't know what that number is. It could be less. I, I doubt mm-hmm. that it's more, mm-hmm. but it could certainly be less. So I guess I'm asking a question here of both of you. Uh, actually you're our guest, but I'm kind of coming at both of you uh, mm-hmm. individual. How do you think, or what do we need to do to, get more representation of our people in the classroom as instructors so that young men and women will see someone that looks like them in the classroom that will understand what we're talking about and work to try to change the method or the message in that environment. How do we get more teachers? I know that's not on our list, but what do you guys mm-hmm. think about that? We only 7%. That, that's startling to me. What are, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you want me to go first? Yes, absolutely. You're the, you're the um, expert you know, here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I will tell you, thank you uh, for the question. Um, I will tell you that um, we also have to look at it in a way that, well, even if we did get them in, are they going to feel comfortable to, to be operating in a hostile environment? You know, that, that in and of itself is, is, is also a challenge. Just that it's one thing to be the educator, to bring in what's necessary in terms of representation. But can one also defend themselves in a space where they're always challenged constantly because their credentials are not, you know, up to par, or if not, they're perceived as having less education. You know, I remember experiencing in one school uh, where I had the same credential, I went to the same university as, uh, you know, as my, uh, you know, my chair. And uh, and you hear comments like, well, why, why your class doesn't seem so rigorous? (laughs) You know, same credentials, same education, and and you got to deal with that. But the point is, is that um, to your question, in terms of inviting, it, it's really, um, I can't say a holistic thing, but it, it, it has to fall within the mission that what you're inviting, who you're inviting, is going to not only just come to be an addition or a contribution, but also will be welcomed and will be able to exercise their own academic you know, expertise. Uh, and I think that, that if, if it can be connected to its mission, uh, a school's mission, that that invitation is there. Um, but there's still more challenges to that because now that you, let's say you do have this uh, sort of rework, you know, invitation by virtue of a mission, now you have to go find, um, you know, uh, educators. And they're there, 
It's just that where are the, what are the pools that you're looking for? You know, mm-hmm. what pools are you looking mm-hmm. for to get them? You know, because oftentimes you'll find that some, um, you know, some education institutions will, you know, will lean on the idea of like, I can't, I can't find them. I don't know where they are. Like, black people will come high, far and wide. <laughs> you know, you know, you drop salary, they will come far and wide. You know, there are people out there. It's where you're looking. If you're looking exactly at staffing right. agencies. If you if you're looking at staffing agencies, you're not looking at uh, institutions that are you know you know are you know centered on African American interests. You're not looking at spaces that directly you know engage that kind of work. Then you're not looking. You are not looking. You know if this is the 21st century, you can't tell me you can't find black people somewhere too. And that often tends to be well. I'm looking for qualified. Well, they're there. They're there. But that's the challenge that becomes faced. It's the thinking and the mindset of saying one that they're available. Two. That are we creating an environment, you know, space? It's no different than when you think about athletes who get accepted to like these, you know, top tier schools and then you just leave them in the school and they start drowning because they have no support. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to create that support system for that. And I think that if, uh, it, it requires a reimagination, a reimagining of um, what it means to hire and also um, and respect for one's expertise, uh, um, you know, with regard to how they instruct in the classroom. You know what, Doc? That's really important. And I would just only add, I recall reading a study um, from a scholar in the Philadelphia area. She had written a paper, was a, it was a white female. And she talked about that she was sort of doing this qualitative um, uh, ecological study around what it does it mean to be a white woman in a black school where there mm-hmm. are few black educators. But this whole notion that some of her colleagues would come every day in the morning and would greet the children a certain way, but also in the sort of the lounge area have um, negative feelings about some of the um, African-American children. And so she talked about the fact that she could really turn on her whiteness um, on and off where the black, some black, all the, obviously the black educators could not, but she had to really recognize that this really created a challenge for her because if she were to say to her colleagues, her white colleagues, why are you talking about the young people this way? Then they would sort of um, isolate her. And then with mm-hmm. the black colleagues, she was saying, well, they would say, well, you can decide which way you want to show up on any given day. Are you our ally or are you not? And so this study was really remarkable to me because this is the first time I heard someone out loud say that that's the paradox that she faced every day, knowing that there were some educators who did not believe in these young people from the outset. And so to your point, if you don't have an environment that really supports this idea of diversity of thought, ideas, and even scholarship in terms of centering blackness of children to, to boost their self-esteem, then how's it ever going to happen? And so um, I really think um, this whole notion of belonging, you know, we're ta- and we'll talk about this a little later, but this whole diversity, equity, inclusion, we also add belonging. What does that really mean in the context of education and, and our school systems? And I think we'll we'll move further on with that a little bit later. So, Doc, I'll turn it back over to you. Well, thank you, because you guys got me going now, and I take us totally off script because you guys <laughs> got my brain going down. And okay. as I read that article, there's a, there's a quote in there, and I'll say this, and then we'll keep going. Uh, Christina Talbot 
she was the contributing uh, writer to this article for the time she spent two decades in education as a black educator in New, or- New Orleans uh, school system. And she made this comment to them when she was right when they were doing the article. She said, I felt my voice was heard until I said something they didn't want to hear. Mm. And and she said, then she found herself in that paradox, you know, because now, you know, oh, it's great. Long as she was saying what Mm -hmm. they wanted her to say and and acting, you know, the way that, you know, get, get, I don't want to go there, but pick the (laughs) cotton, you know, do this, you know, fix the meal. You know, as long as she was doing what she was told, she said, they love me until I said something they didn't want to hear. Right. Well, she yeah. was the provocateur, she, right? When, exactly. when you start provoking, mm-hmm. then it's all of a sudden you are in, in most systems. And so it's not just an education, but when you begin to push against the status quo and create and begin to be curious about why do we do things this way or what about this? And it's like, oh, if you're not operating within that construct, right. then you mm-hmm. are deemed as different or the provocateur or the agitator or the problem. Or the angry. <laughs> yeah. Or, or the you know, angry yeah. black woman or yeah. angry or black man or whatever. Angry, absolutely. Angry. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So, 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 you know, today we're dealing with petitions all across the, the nation regarding the rights of parents on what their children uh, should be taught in the classroom. And so, Doc, can you share with us from your perspective how – how can we teach young black children in the school about their greatness? We know they're great. And how can we teach them about the American dream when the American dream is not centered on recognizing or reconciling, I should say, uh, its past for the brutal, brutal historical torture of, of slavery, Jim, Jim Crow and mass incarceration and redlining and gentrification? Uh, in other words, how do we address this constant state of racial oppression from the current and future generations of, of black children. How, how in the world do we do that? Because we see it every day. Mm-hmm. So how, how do yeah. we handle that? Well, you know, um, the the initial um, way we we approach this when you think about Carter G. Woodson and the creation of the black you know Black History Week eventually become Black History Month by the sixties and seventies is that um, we just needed to see people in those positions. Um, I'm of the mind where um, I think we should also not just see, but also evolve in our understanding of that by showing how people have survived in such professions. And um, I, I may bungle this example, but I'll give you an example. Um, so Grandmaster Flash, when he was, um, you know, creating his, uh, you know, his band over in the 70s, the rap group, um, you know, having to think about how to mix, you know, um, you know, music. Um, having to put a, you know, a marker on a record so he knew where the breakpoints were, you know, was his creative way to kind of break into the music scene, right? Once we have the mixing of the, of the records and stuff. Right? Um, another example, like a Viola Davis, she only has like 15 minutes in a uh, in a movie that you know, um, Doubt with um, you know Meryl Streep, and she ends up getting an, uh, an Academy Award for it, or at least an award for it. Now, let me uh, I'm gonna say the wrong award here, but won a major award, but she made that 15-minute stretch to the point where that scene was what she needed to do to kind of get to, to stand out. I think those sort of stories of how people survive in a, in a, in a society that, you know, that they're made invisible and how they've made themselves visible mm. is what you teach kids to see their greatness. You know, when you think about when dunking was not allowed in, in uh, you know, the uh, national basketball, you know, the NBA, uh, it wasn't allowed. Um, people, you know, you had all these rules set to have a sales sort of basketball game, 
And guess who's working around the rules, right? The black players. They mm-hmm. look around them. And guess what? They're getting noticed. And, you know, and it's like, look, maybe this is possible. It's that which I think when you have um, students read or see people find ways around to be visible that they see their greatness, right? That's what creates that sort of self-esteem that, that builds their self-esteem. When they see like, oh, that's a cool move. That's never been done before. But it took someone who had to be under such constraints, unfortunately, to kind of show that it is possible to kind of stand out. And I think that's one way of having to, um, you know, show kids their greatness to say that you can find it's a work of art to kind of work around it. And it's an unfortunate thing, but it's possible. But it's possible. And that's how I think that you can approve them. To your other question, though, uh, with regard to, and I think I remember, I think your question was the idea of, um, uh, in other words, um, the how do we stop the constant racial oppression? I'm thinking, uh, I remember, oh, no, the American dream. You had a question about the American dream. Uh, how do we um, uh, teach, you know, teach them this, knowing that the American dream is not centered in their, you know, um, in reconciling their past? I also think that uh, when it comes to the American dream, whose dream is it? Mm. You know, whose dream are we talking about? <laughs> right. You know, and I think that's important. That's an important question right there. That's you know, hard. is it that's something true. that you want to, right? Do you want mm. to imitate that dream? I mean, let, let's see what that looks like. Let's kind of see what it looks like to have all that people are expecting, to go to the top tier schools, to have the ideal job. To have the, you know, um, you know, let's say you're a medical doctor. I mean, if you really open up the question about how do medical doctors live their life, talking about I eat on the go, my I have high cholesterol. I mean, it, you probably wouldn't want that kind of life if you could understand that mental health part of that is a struggle. Why would we w- would want that? Is there a way that we can kind of fulfill ourselves in other ways? So I think unpacking that question, just what you know, an American dream is, and on top of that. It makes me think of something that I remember um, hearing from, uh, you know, the amazing uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones um, in one of her uh, rebuttals to people wondering why she didn't take the job over at the University of uh, North Carolina at Chapel Hill. When they're like, you're going to let them win. You're going to let them win. Why don't you just kind of fight and just stay over there? And she says, yeah, but I don't want to win somebody somebody else's game. Mm, <laughs> you know? That's good. Mm-hmm. You, know, what game, you know, what game am I playing? You know, and so you have to recognize your place and figure out for yourself what are you really competing for? You know, and I think that that's what, uh, I think a couple, I think those two things, um, what people can do, uh, being invisible and making themselves invisible, as long as unpack, as, as well as unpacking the American dream, um, is a, is a, is a good way to start. That's, that's pretty, um, profound right there. Who's, who's dream. And, um, you know, we're still looking for Martin's dream, right? right, right. <laughs> so when I think about the right. dream, like we're still, we're still trying to um, understand and actualize that. But the other thing, you know, and I was thinking about the uh, song from Hamilton that I'm not going to throw away my shot. That's the other mm-hmm. thing that, you know, you're saying anytime we get an opportunity. So Viola Davis and her magnificence took that 15 minutes and made that mm-hmm. into something. And so every time we show up in spaces, we have a responsibility to not throw away our shot. And that's what I'm hearing you saying, and that we cannot um, afford to be invisible. We have to make the invisible visible in whatever sector we're in and making sure that we're maximizing it for the, for the greater good of um, our people. And so too often I've seen, and I'm sure, Doc, both of you all have seen, we sometimes get to these spaces um, that we think it's about us. 
and we forget about the masses. And so, Doc, I know wherever you maneuver, this is Dr. Destin, wherever you go, with all of your brilliance, you are humble, but yet you are purposeful and intentional about each action that you take. So talk yes. to us about what does that look like for you as a, a, a person of the African diaspora? What has it been like for you not being born in this country, but now maneuvering in this country? How does that make sense for you and the, and the spaces that you have um, been able to do your work in? Well, um, one correction. Um, I was born in Miami, but my parents came over. So oh, okay. Thank here. you for that correction. Okay. <laughs> okay. No problem. Yes, <laughs> but still, it's a, it's still it's a very good question, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm going to um, if you if, if you allow me to kind of um, reframe it a little bit here. Absolutely. Um, when I think about navigating, um, a, you know, spaces spaces where you are. What's on my mind right now, I'm thinking about Arthur Ashe. Mm. Arthur Ashe. Um, Arthur Ashe, people like Althea Gibson, before the 1960s, they are showing black excellence because they're letting their skills show that, you know, you know, speak for themselves. But something particularly happens, and I think it's under research that we, we really don't talk much about, we should talk more about, is that when we get to the 60s, that method of dealing with racial oppression is not under, it's criticized as, you didn't do enough. Mm. Now you have to be you know, like a Muhammad Ali, you know, someone who speaks out, and they get hammered for it. And I think that there's a fine line there. So when I think about myself, I think that there are times when I have to let my work speak for itself because it it raises challenges for me to actually, you know, you know, execute the goals that I want for students for my own mental health. That I, if I if I risk that I may lose um, the the means by which I could do that, but then there are times to have to stand up and say call out for what it is, and I think that um, there's not a discussion uh, just generally in in part of the black studies about that about that fine line that does happen where some people are criticizing your black excellence you know because you're letting, you're letting your your skills speak for themselves but but you didn't stand up when they were saying this and that. Why didn't you kind of call it out when the world was, was all falling apart? You know, but if I did that, I would be confirming stereotypes. I'd be confirming, you know, the angry black person, you know? But then again, you've got to call out things when necessary. I think that's a hard thing when you are a black person in America. And for me, I, I find that very difficult because you are trying to hold the center and the center is hard to hold when people... Uh, will challenge you, even from people from your own background, people mm -hmm. from your own, your own folks will, you know, will challenge you because you're either too privileged, you look like you're too privileged, or you've never come from where I've come from to have gone to the places that you've been. And you have to kind of like negotiate that. So I think that for me, um, it has been challenging to do that. And I also should add a little layer, which is a little bit more about me, and I'll, I'll probably send you an article about me. Uh, it's an uh, article uh, called Finding Cultural Pride. Um, after a teen suicide. Um, mm. So I had been um, hiding my Haitian identity. I'm of Haitian uh, descent, but hiding my Haitian identity when I was a kid. And um, I had been doing that because during the time of the 80s, we know that the you know, Haitian immigrants were coming over to Miami and being in Miami, the influx of, 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 of immigrants certainly caused anti-Haitian sentiment. So I was definitely uh, afraid to, to share my background, but I was able to pass, which probably was more dangerous for me because it allowed me to stay with this sense of 
play, you know, playing this passing game much longer mm-hmm. and having much more mental impact on me, as opposed to people who could be found out easily, given their name, given their experiences. And so um, one particular case, and this, I'll, I'll, I'll stop here, though, was one particular case was a guy named Ted A. Jen, who, um, a young man who committed suicide when he was found out by his, uh, his girlfriend when his sister kind of um, interrupted and uh, um, spoke Creole to him. And he was so mortified that he had been outed in front of his girlfriend, who probably knew he was Haitian, but, you know, he thought he could hide it, and eventually um, brought a gun and committed suicide. And that's just one example of mm. just how, um, you know, um, just the idea of uh, Haitians going through anti-sentiment. But, but, but to couch it in the broader sense of race, it's because Haitians being, uh, as, as, you know, being stereotyped and stigmatized, and, and, and there's some real things to say about the poverty and the poverty of the country, but also with a purpose because they were the first in the country to kind of revolt and become independent, mm-hmm. that, that, that the lack of history, of knowing that history, is why I was passing, right? The lack of knowing that because it was not shared, it was not been talked about in schools, made me feel the way I did the past. The past is black. Now, you imagine for black kids who are not learning about their black past, what they're doing. Having to say, well, maybe I could be what a white, you know, my white peer is doing, mm-hmm. only to realize that I can't be what they're doing because I, 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 I'm not included, and I think um, I could be included. You know, if that makes sense. Well, no, it absolutely does. And so, what you're bringing to the fore is just this multi-layered and complexity of race and how we see ourselves and what we're expected to do. And I think you're absolutely right that in academia, I think it is really understudied this whole dynamic and the schisms that we go through as um, black successful people in these spaces. And I think you beautifully articulated, there are times where I say, is this the hill you're going to die on? Right. 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 (laughs) Or are you going to be able to just deal with whatever you're dealing with internally about how you want to respond to this microaggression or macroaggression, quite frankly, or is this the thing that you're going to stand up for and you're willing to lose everything? And that's the thing that we have to grapple with every day, all day. (laughs) And so I, I think that you're absolutely right or, or are you black enough or are you this enough or are Mm -hmm. you, you know, so we go through that and we don't necessarily talk about what that is, but at the same time, we don't talk about that. That also um, is the thing that is also hindering us in our life expectancy because of racism in America is also decreased because we have to deal with all of this in our mental health and our, you know, obviously it hit, hit, hits every organ in our bodies, right. but we don't talk yeah. about that either. And so I think you bring to the fore such a critical conversation that I think we must continue to Um, consider. And so with that, um, you really talked about this whole idea. And what I heard is sort of this respectability politics, right? You know, when do we, you know, when do we stand up and when are we um, black enough not? And then how do we, when we think about the fact that diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in the spaces that we may, as Dr. Brock, you talked about earlier, we're just one of the few, how do we and how do you, doctor, even um, really help your um, white colleagues to think about how are they able to help with this um, black esteem in, or, or uh, building up the esteem of black children 
um, when they are the educator, particularly when there's been propaganda in this country about who we are. We talked about the stereotypes and those sorts of things. And you said it's not really easy because, you know, if I am the black woman with the straight hair, I might get one sort of reaction. But if I got my fro and my garb on, then I mm-hmm. might get a different reaction. So how do you, um, um, in your role, really advance this notion of allyship um, in your sector um, to really create this better understanding of how our white partners can build up the self-esteem of black children as they interface with them? Right. I think um, what it takes, and it's, it's something I've, I've done, um, I've been working with uh, when it comes to my white colleagues, and even with white students, is that um, they don't think that the fight against racism applies to them. They see it as, um, even if they can be sympathetic to black, a black, you know, the black causes, um, to, to black oppression, to what's happening to black people, they don't see how they are being impacted. Um, they see it more as how do we save, the, you know, others. Mm. Uh, and so what I do is, to give an example, let's say with my students first, is that in the spaces, I ask them, tell me where you're from. And I don't mean your race. Tell me where you know. If you don't know, we'll go ahead and take a guess. And so what I'll have is I'll have students who'll say, um, uh, I think my parents are from Ireland or Germany. Uh, someone will say from Trinidad. I'll have someone who says, like, I don't know. Okay, I think I'm from Africa. I know I'm from Africa. And then you have someone who's like, I don't know. I'm, I'm from Europe. You know. Um, and so what I do then is stop and say, all right, you know when I hear that you say you're from Ireland? I think about the troubles. I think about that movement. I think about that um, the, the bombings that happened between North and South of uh, Ireland and mm-hmm. the idea of the Boston Catholic dynamic. When I hear things like Germany, I wonder how did your family reconcile with this whole, you know, what happened with, with the Nazis? Well, you know, were they a participant? Were you a victim? Mm-hmm. I wonder how that works out for you. If you're a Trinidadian, I wonder how colonization works out for you. How did how did you all, just, you know, in the, you know, independently do that? I think about those things. In doing so, I know you a little bit more from what you told me. So in this space, I know your heart. I know what you're saying. The problem is that once you step out this door, and I point out right outside the door of my classroom, you step out that door, there are historical narratives that will stick to your skin. Your skin is a sticker. Nobody will bother to know the, the rest of you, but they will know you based on the history of your skin. So if you're a white kid who walks out, who apparently is a white kid, because not everyone you know, identifies as such. Some could be from Latin America, some parts of Latin America, or Europe. But the idea is that if you appear as white and you slap a black kid outside this door, Ain't no one going to be saying like, oh, you are, you're, you know, you're, you know, the Irish, you must have gone through something personal mm-hmm. or you are a Trinidadian. They won't, they're going to, America is going to spend a lot of energy on the race question. Oh my God, this happened in the predominantly white school. Maybe that kid who got slapped, you know, he was, you know, pity. He wasn't getting that support. Oh, let's go see where they live. They live in a predominantly black neighborhood. Oh my mm-hmm. God. And they tell the whole story. It's not until much later that you then get, after all the hurt and trauma has happened, that America starts to kind of see the humanity of it all. And I'll give you a real-life example. When the whole Amber Geiger case happened where she, um, you know, calls the cops, and she's a cop herself, mm-hmm. and she says someone's robbing her apartment, and they go into the apartment, she walks in, shoots the guy who's sitting on the couch eating ice cream, not knowing it's not her apartment, not her apartment. but thought it was, mm-hmm. right? He dies. The whole, you know, the whole narrative, which it is there, the whiteness and the black person's being shot, for weeks, and all of a sudden, the humanity start coming out of that. Mm. He's a guy from Tobago. He, he, you know, he was here making, you know, trying to, you know, have, you know, help his own family here. 
And it comes later, wow. much later. And the point is, is that if you can have people in spaces where you can have them say, tell me more about yourself. Now compare that to what it is like out there. Then you know that you have to fight just as much as black people have to fight to keep that sticker from sticking onto your skin or being on your skin. Because you being a white person, being in, in spaces where people are doing some crazy white stuff, you're not exempt for that because mm, you're not saying anything about mm-hmm. it. So if you're not fighting against that, you'll be you'll succumb to the narrative that people have about you. No different than if it was a person, you know, if it was a black person who was among black people who are now seen as thugs, that they would have to fight that narrative because we do that every day. Mm-hmm. So it's not limited to just black people. It's limited. It's also to white people who also have to do that. And once they can see and hear that, oh, you know me more here than it is out there. There is true because every white person knows they they tiptoe over you know racist um, you know the, the 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 label being called a racist, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and in having to tiptoe that they know that they are fighting the narratives that we fight as black people about. I ain't trying to be the angry person. I'm not. I'm just trying to you know. I'm just trying to get get through the day. Yes, mm-hmm. but that's the struggle that I face, and that's the struggle white people face too. Wow, you said your skin is a sticker. Your skin color yeah. is, I mean, it's, it's, it's the sticker. As soon as you walk out that room, who are you? You yeah. become a sticker. That, you know, Doc, you you dropping all sorts of um, wisdom and knowledge here. This has just been amazing. Thank you so much for that example because that's, you know, getting the humanity comes later. Right. Wow. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Comes later yeah. because I have that sticker, but my humanity becomes later. You don't even see me as human until I we unpack the story, if you will. So that is. Might I add? I'm sorry. Might I add? Think about people who go to prisons and later. Oh my God! You shouldn't have gone. That's when the humanity comes out later. So good. So good. So good. I'm telling you, you guys, this has been so rich and normally we're not this long on our podcast and I'm sitting here saying, okay, how do we get out of this thing? Cause there's so much and my brain is spinning and going and, and it's amazing. So we're going to try to see if we can get this wrapped up uh, in a nice neat bow. I don't know how, cause I'm like Dr. Sharon, you didn't drop so many knowledge in my brain. Yeah, we might have a, have a part yeah, two yeah, with this doc. Yeah, so, you know, don't, don't, um, we will call you back, but we're, you know, I think we just were, we're close to the end, but yes. I know, mm-hmm. you know, we wanted to really just ask you what your greatest hope, hopes are for, and fears, quite frankly, for um, as educate, you know, as an educator, as we move forward in this sort of anti-blackness movement, if you will, if we really, well, you know, what would be your hope and your your? Let's start with your hopes um, in terms mm-hmm. of as we move forward for building the self-esteem of black children in this country. Yeah. You know, um, I would, um, if we had an opportunity, I'd love to unpack this. But what we saw in the 1960s, believe it or not, has happened four or three other times in history. It just it just happens to be the 1960s as well documented. You know, it goes back to 19, you know, 1776 of that movement of how we even got emancipated or at least sued for our freedom. Mm. And then it happens again with um, the, the on the onset of, civil, of the Civil War. Then there's moments there that was critical, and that led to you know more um, you know you know ending uh, you know uh, closing down slavery, and then of course we had uh, the 1960s, and it looks like with regard to what's going on with um, following the murder of George Floyd, we're beginning to ramp up and have another moment. Mm-hmm. And my hope is is that um, these are these these time periods where. We're about to, I think we're going to get to this point where we will get back to like a 60s feel of 
you know, of renaissance, of black ideas coming out, of people realizing that we should say something. So I don't, I think that we're, we're heading toward that, but not without backlash, not without backlash. For sure, for and, sure. And my fear is, um, and I say that, and I, I should say this too, it's because if education was what ended racial segregation, can you imagine that education is why they're fighting so hard? Mm. It, that was the antidote, and now it's like, kill the antidote. So I think that that's generating the movement that's about to happen in the future. And I think that once we get there, I think that we'll, we'll see um, everything come out of the woodwork. But I think that it'll also galvanize black people. So that's my greatest hope. In terms of fear, though, is that while this is happening, countless people are buying into what they think they ought to be through media. I know it sounds that we've kind of improved uh, throughout the, you know, throughout um, the centuries, but it's no less deadly. Mm-hmm. It's no less deadly. We may have improved in terms of means and the way things look and the way things, you know, happen. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, in terms of having the means to, to live uh, much more, I guess you might say, um, longer lives in terms of, um, you know, healthcare and stuff. But it's no less deadly. You still can get killed just as you would if a cop stopped you way back in the 1920s as you would in the 19, you know, in the 2023 right now, you know? Absolutely so I think that true. that's my fear right. is that we will lose um, many more lives as we go through. And, and, and now with this whole pressure to, to, to eliminate the black experience, we really struggle. It, it now becomes an even much more brutal or, or struggle to kind of face. Wow. Well, you know, um, I'm, I'm just, I think that that was sort of this pause moment because, you know, that this whole notion that we're still, Listen, we're going to be struggling um, because as we go back to earlier, we talked about this whole myth that we are beyond our racism. We are not we have not reconciled that. And so therefore, we are in this perpetual cycle of um, trauma, as you talked about, Mm -hmm. and this whole notion that nothing has really changed. Sometimes we package things as if they is changed. Um, I think there's some levels of tolerance, but do we want to. Um, really be a place where we're tolerated and not celebrated, as Doc, you would always right. say. Yeah, so, so I think that that's the, that's the space that we're in. But this has been really remarkable. And I just want to give you, we want to give you the space to talk about the book that you're writing, because I think we've heard your brilliance and heard your thinking and just your curiosity around some of these concepts. And so if you can just let us know a little bit more about what you're writing about so that, and when your book will be coming out, cause I'll be the first one to buy it. <laughs> um, um, I really think this is going to be an important piece of contribution to the James Baldwin, to James Baldwin's work. Um, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm doing a super deep dive on his nonfiction collection. So he wrote a, he created or at least produced, an edited version of all the collections of his non, not all of them, but his selected pieces of nonfiction work in 1985. And um, what he was doing was almost kind of re- reigniting his um, his presence in America because he had been in France. Mm-hmm. And there's much to say about him being in France. And the fact that he selected these himself, I've kind of looked through the entire book. It's about 600, 700 pages. Um, and I have been mining it for concepts understanding where did he get these ideas from? Where did he get these ideas of racial innocence? Mm-hmm. And that's really what it is. Racial innocence is presenting rights from confronting white supremacy. Where is he getting that from? And few people um, I've read have ever articulated that. Most people get into the idea that he says confront your history. He says, you know, um, you know that uh, you know he has these great quotes 
oh, the fire next time is his greatest work. It is true, but no one can say where it came from. Mm. Few people can say, you know, they, they start they go they start being historical about it. Well, he had a rough childhood, but there's more to it, and that's what I'm doing here. Is that I'm actually chronicling his entire work in this one text, and I've gone through it twice. It's been, I've been doing it for the past five years, and I'm about to produce it where it now will say, "Here is his philosophy." Wow. We got the history part. Mm-hmm, let's mm-hmm. now get the philosophy, and let's grapple with that. That's that's pretty remarkable. I can't wait until um, I get a chance to read what's in your which in your thoughts and ideas about his remarkable work. And you know, he's one of those scholars and and, and critics that you know. Again, you, as you said, people want to quote him, but they really don't understand him. I mean, he was just a pretty incredible um, person, but also filled with lots of questions and curiosity about what is this thing (laughs) that we're living no matter where he landed right and so um for you to be able to help us really understand it better i think is going to be a a pretty incredible for um america and and beyond and so doc you know i know we have to end i know you have to get on to another meeting but this has been um, one of the most profound in our short tenure of doing these podcasts, right. one of his most profound and educational experiences for What's Up Cuz. And I just want to thank you, Dr. Even, for being here, being in my life the way you show up and just being an incredible scholar. Your brilliance is beyond compare. And I really do thank you um, for being with us today. Thank you for the opportunity, and I'd love to be back for um, wherever intersections of being involved with you, you see fit. I'd love to uh, be there. I appreciate you, both um, Daniel and Dr. Block. Thank you. Absolutely. We're so grateful that you've joined us. And so I, what I'm going to do is give you like 15 to 20 seconds to what would you like to leave the audience with today at, that we should be grappling with as we leave this podcast. What is your drop the mic moment for us today? And we'll end with that. What would you leave us with? All right. There is a question that Bolin had asked um, in a reading called um, Prince and Powers. And he was, he was really applying this to like what was happening in France, this um, movement. But I think that you can adapt this to today. And I wonder, and I'd love to put this question out. I don't have, I don't have the answer, but I'd love to hear at some point someone's answer. He writes, if I were to, to adapt this question, what has the American experience made of black Americans and what are they now to do? Mm. I'll, say, I'll say that again. What has the American experience made of black Americans and what are they now to do? Wow. <laughs> that well, was a drop the was mic the, moment. Yeah, I was going to say, that was truly a drop wow. the mic moment. Dr. Dustin, thank you so much for your time and your brilliance. And Doc, as always, thank you for bringing on such a remarkable individual. And I hope you, our listeners, will uh, listen. And I know this podcast is a little bit longer than normal, but this is critical information that we need as black people. If we don't know who we are, we don't know where we're going. If we don't know our past, we certainly won't uh, live a future worthwhile. So, uh, Dr. Dustin, thank you so much for your time and, again, being our guest. And, uh, you know, because, as I say, you know, thank you again for being you and thank oh, you for so this welcome. opportunity. And we hope that you will take something away from this podcast that will make you better and never bitter for giving us this time. Until we come to you again, we like to say, uh, what's up, cuz? What's up, cuz? You stay strong until we talk again. 
Thank you.